Um, this December, it will be 25 years since I was baptised. I mentioned it um, uh, at the day away. And I can still remember that day very vividly. One of the things I remember saying at the front was that I saw this as only a beginning, beginning of a new life and a new direction. I have to say, 25 years ago, I wasn't quite sure what should happen after that day. I don't mean particularly what life decisions I should make. I've had to make many life decisions uh, since then. But that's not what uh, um, I was concerned about and have been concerned about since. I wasn't clear about how I should grow as a Christian. I knew the Christian life is about growing in godliness and in stature. But I didn't know how. And I have to say, these last 25 years, I, I, I have uh, stumbled along somewhat in my Christian growth very often. I've known victory over sins, I've experienced uh, defeats. And that persistent question has, has, has dogged me um, has come back to me again and again over those two and a half decades. I've asked and re-asked and wrestled with it and prayed about it. How can I grow? How can I change? How can I be the person whom God has called me to be? And the first answer to that question that I think, to be honest, I had in my mind 25 years ago <coughs> is this. I can defeat sin, I can grow in godliness through the right techniques. If I just learn this method of prayer or cultivate that spiritual gift, if I discipline myself with this routine, if I go to this church, if I read this book, then I will have the victory. But we fail. Not that those things are entirely false. But we find again and again when we put our hope in particular techniques we fail and we feel rotten about ourselves. Most of us here are able to hide that more or less I suspect some of us can even hide it from ourselves a lot of the time. A few of us, our lives may be so disorderly that we can't really hide it and it's obvious. When we um, experience failures, we are actually more and more vulnerable to the next peddler of the next technique that is going to revolutionise our lives. Your problem is this, they tell us. The worship in that church just down the road, go to that and it will change your life. That preacher over there, he will transform you. You need 
to be slain by the Spirit. You need to have this particular spiritual experience. No, no, says another person. You need to learn this particular discipline. Reading through Robert Murray McShane's um, Bible, daily Bible reading plan every year will revolutionise your life. Follow these 12 steps, says another voice, and you will never be the same. And on it goes, it clamours. They clamour those voices. Exactly like they did in the first century. Exactly like they did in first century Corinth. Corinth was a city, I'll leave that for a minute, um, a city full of problems. At uh, one level, it was a vibrant, young city. It stood um, uh, on the isthmus of, uh, between mainland Greece and the Peloponnese there. And because in ancient uh, uh, Roman um, uh, Empire, the ships were reluctant to go all the way around the long um, uh, peninsula, um, they would rather... Um, come up to the, um, uh, the eastern or the western port, unload their cargo, transport it across the short isthmus of land and load it up onto another ship and go on their ways. Actually, near Corinth, they had even built a paved road so that small ships could be actually physically hauled out of the water and hauled over land for a few miles and put back in the water the other side. Not surprisingly then, the city that controlled those two ports and that um, uh, paved way was, became a prosperous and vibrant port. It um, had all the glories and actually all the vices of great British ports of the past like Bristol or Liverpool or Portsmouth. It was teeming with sailors and labourers from all over the world. The, the streets echoed to the shouts of stevedores and sailmakers and street peddlers and prostitutes. But it also had plenty of wealthy, pretentious people in this, uh, this city. If you go to Bristol today, the, the slums have been uh, long since cleared. You can see virtually no trace of them. What remains of 18th and 19th century Bristol is wealthy townhouses, enormous municipal buildings named after the great merchants of the past in that city. And Corinth was just like that. Poverty, degradation... and great wealth, all in a bustling, cosmopolitan city. Just a few years before, wrote, uh, before Paul wrote this letter to the Corinthians, he'd arrived in the city and uh, um, he had successfully planted a church. Amazingly, that church had people from all stratas of Corinthian society in it. Men who just a few years before had been drunkards on the streets found themselves sitting next to the wealthy merchants who they once had cursed from the gutter. Women who had scraped a living as prostitutes or pickpockets 
now found themselves kneeling in prayer next to refined Italian noblewomen. It was an extraordinary church, this, uh, this church. In this church were the seeds of a, a, an amazing miracle. But by the time Paul writes 1 Corinthians, in fact, it's spiralling into a terrible catastrophe. Scholars have argued interminably about what, what exactly was wrong in Corinth. Can we, can we pin it down to one particular thing? It's very difficult to put your finger on, on, on one thing that was wrong in Corinth because so much seems to be going wrong. But perhaps we can start to get a bit more of an understanding of it by imagining us what it would be like to be back in that swirling cauldron of a city and of a church. The church was full of people from pretty sordid backgrounds. When such people become Christians, they don't generally immediately change completely overnight. Old addictions stick, patterns of thinking and behaving are difficult to eradicate. And those people now, as believers who want to lead a good life, who read about the quality of life they are called to, find themselves deeply distressed by their behaviour, doing things now that they hate. And they find themselves asking my post-baptismal question. How can I change? How can I be the person that I want that, that I know that I should be. And then along in a town like Corinth comes a wealthy, well-educated, respectable Christian merchant who to all intents and purposes has his life together. Everyone looks up to him. Everyone wants to know his secret. Like everyone else, he's actually, to be honest, a young Christian. But his success has made him absolutely confident that he knows how to do life. He knows the way the world works. And of course the drunkards and the prostitutes who know they don't know how life works flock to people like him. But what he offers them has nothing much to do with Christianity at all. It's just the latest self-help technique, thinly Christianised, containing just enough truth in it to make it sound plausible, but in the end, it's, it's claptrap. In Col Corinth, there were a number of such people, and as far as we can see from the letter, each one was, was um, advocating his own particular bit of self-help, spiritual advice. Some said, what you need to do is you really need to, to, to speak in tongues and have spiritual experiences of an ecstatic kind and that will change you. Others cleverly reinterpreted Christian morality so that those people with troubled consciences could almost believe that it wasn't so bad that they were addicted to sex. Still others suggested that the way to, uh, uh, to defeat the body was total abstinence from, uh, uh, from uh, all sorts of things, including sex and marriage. 
maintain their purity in that way. There were diverse opinions about what you should do about idolatry, which was um, absolutely rife in, in Corinth. Or, or what, what about the role of women and so on and so forth. And here was a voice after voice after voice saying, follow me, I've got the answer. What these self-appointed gurus were doing, however, was that they were really just fishing for a following. In the Roman world, the number of people who owed allegiance to you and who followed you was very, very important for your self-respect. So, frankly, they saw the ordinary run of people in the church as just so much fodder for their reputations. They didn't really care about them. If those people crossed them, for instance, um, they threw them into, uh, uh, took them to court straight away, even had them thrown into jail. And they wouldn't even eat with them. But still, ordinary, troubled people flocked to them because that is what people with troubled consciences do. They long for a solution. They long for a person who will tell them how to run their lives. The Corinthian church was a mess. Before we begin thinking just a little bit this morning about Paul's answer to um, uh, this problem though, we should uh, first of all <coughs> um, notice that Paul still calls this really messy church, a church. You see what he says, verse 2? So the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and so on. This church contained men and women who were arrogant, unjust, sexually immoral, idolatrous, uncaring, loveless, anarchistic, heretical and probably a whole lot more and yet Paul still calls them the church of God. Quite extraordinary. Not to say he's indifferent to their failings. No, he speaks passionately against them. It's not to say that he will, he, he will um, um, go on calling the Corinthian church a church forever. He's quite clear, for instance, in 1 Corinthians 5 that a notorious sinner should be um, excommunicated. They don't have the right to have the reputation of being a Christian if they are devoted to doing evil. And there are hints in the New Testament as well that if whole churches devote themselves to either um, justifying gross sin or, uh, or um, uh, gross heresy, then after, after a while they have no longer the right to be called a true church. But rather than jump to that, Paul, as he speaks to this, this troubled congregation, wants to reassure them that he still considers them a church. Perhaps you think that if the people around you knew what was going on in your heart, knew what was going on personally in your life, 
How does she think they'd throw you out that door straight away? Well, Paul didn't. Jesus didn't. And we will not hear. Now there is a clear and strong call to change, to live up to God's standards. But that is not combined with a censorious attitude. We must do battle with these things. In the end we cannot tolerate those who devote themselves to sin and try to justify sin as if it was not the terrible thing it is. But there is in Scripture and there must be amongst us massive room for people to struggle, for people to explore their doubts, for people to wrestle with those things that they know they have to wrestle with. This church is more dysfunctional than us, at least as far as I'm aware. And it's still a church. What then are the first hints of a solution to this problem this turbulent church with its uh, self-appointed gurus, each of them peddling a different solution. How is Paul going to help this church towards maturity? How is he going to help them grow? The first thing he says is really quite interesting and important. He says to these believers I'm nobody special the way he does that is found in verse 1 Paul he says called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes He mentions, you see, uh, as a co-author with him, this other man, Sosthenes. He's probably the same man who gets mentioned in Acts uh, chapter 18 as the uh, Jewish ruler of the synagogue in, uh, in Corinth. And if he is the same man, since uh, that moment he has evidently been converted and has now be, become recognised as a senior and respected figure in the Corinthian church. He's away from Corinth at the moment. Paul's writing this letter from Ephesus and uh, he uh, is there across the water in Ephesus with Paul but he comes from Corinth and he's probably returning to Corinth, possibly even carrying this letter. The striking thing about this is that Paul, the great apostle, doesn't write this letter just from himself. He feels the need to associate with himself with this lesser man, who, to be honest, is virtually unknown in the, New, in the New Testament. Some suggest it's because Sosthenes is actually well respected and so Paul's trying to, trying to sort of enhance his authority in Corinth. But I think, I suspect it's the opposite. 
He's saying this letter doesn't just come from me. I'm not competing with all those gurus who say follow me. This comes from me and another ordinary Christian believer. Later on at the end of the letter, he says that he he associates himself with Timothy. He says, make sure that he has nothing to fear from you. He associates himself with Apollos, who he describes as his dear friend. He associates himself with uh, um, uh, three men called Stephanus, Fortunatus and Achaicus. and And he says, submit to such people as these. In other words, he's saying, your world, Corinthians, is full of mature Christians who can help you. Don't latch on to one. There are lots of them. All these other gurus were fighting over them, trying to say that they had the unique solution. And Paul says, no, the world is full of people who can help you. Indeed, he will say in 1 Corinthians 3, they can work together so that together they help you as a team. Humble Christian teachers who will love you, who will labour for you, who will teach you, who will admonish you, who will help you towards maturity. I'm writing, he says, this letter, not as your guru, but just as one amongst many who will help you towards maturity. Now that is so important for, for, for our 21st century world where actually lots and lots of people are running around trying to find the perfect church, the great leader who will revolutionise their lives. And even the apostle here says that he's only one of, num- of number. I'm no one special, he says, do not latch on to me as if I somehow magically hold the solution. He says, I'll tell you who has the solution. It's Christ. Those first nine verses, Christ is mentioned again and again and again. Did you, did you notice that as Margaret read to us? Paul is an apostle of Christ Jesus. That's his only status. He's been sent by Christ Jesus. They, the Corinthians, uh, in verse 2, are sanctified in Christ Jesus. All Christians, he said, call on the name of our Lord Christ Jesus, verse verse 2. In verse 3, he says, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace has come to them, verse 4, in Christ Jesus. The testimony of Paul and others, verse 6, is about Christ. They are waiting, verse 7, for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. They they will be, verse 8, blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God has called them, verse 9, into fellowship with his Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so on and so on and so on. Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ. Don't be obsessed with a personality, he says. Be obsessed with Jesus Yeah, people like Paul play a very important role. To a lesser extent, pastors and Bible teachers play an important role. But don't traipse around 
from church to church, from place to place, from book to book, from peddler of experience after peddler of experience, thinking that somehow they will solve your problem. Go to Christ. Seek Christ. He's the special one. I'm nobody special then, says Paul. Jesus is. Then he says something just a little bit more cutting. You're nobody special too. He insists uh, in verse uh, 2 as he greets them that their status is exactly the same as all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. See, these, these, these plausible leaders were insisting their teachers, their teachings were not only special to them, they would make these people special. Anyone who came to their church, to their uh, meeting, would become a special Christian, would be elevated above the rest, would know the hidden secrets of God, would know the secret of how to live. And Paul says, no, there is nothing in this world except the bog-standard Christian. We are all exactly the same. We are all people who simply call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are all sinners in need of grace. We are all ignorant people who need to have our eyes opened by Jesus. We are all people who would be lost and absolutely nothing if it were not for Jesus. We are all the same. Do not be intoxicated by someone who says they will make you special. From the beginning to the end of your Christian life, you will be someone who calls on the name of Jesus, who longs for him, who yearns for him, who needs him. Let me say, I think you are special. You are special to me. I couldn't think of any church in the world I would uh, uh, rather pastor, any job in the world I would rather. I think we have an enormous privilege in this city, in this place at this time and I delight in what I see in terms of the love and vitality and real Christian life that there is. And the Apostle Paul is unabashed at saying exactly those things to churches that he knows and that he has pastored. So I'm not going to stop saying how much I delight in what God is doing amongst us here. But it is a hair's breadth from that to thinking that we are collective Jose Mourinho's. Jose Mourinho said very wisely, I thought, when they were pestering him about whether he still thought he was the special one, he said, ask my wife, And it is legitimate for us to feel that sense of special bond here. 
just as it is for his wife to say that he's special. But never in the sense that elevates us to thinking we are anything other than people who call on the name of Jesus. You are nobody special, he says. But in Christ, you are deeply special. That's very, very clear at the beginning of verse 2. So the church of God in Corinth, he said, says, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be holy. Paul says you are sanctified in Christ. That is, you have been made holy. That is, you have been set apart for God himself. God himself has chosen to give you new life. He has kindled love for him in your hearts. <coughs> and he's not going to let that fire go out. He's going to keep you through all of your sins, through all of your failures, through all of your doubts, through all of your wanderings and he's finally going to take you home to be with him forever in the new heaven and the new earth. He has set you apart for himself. He has sanctified you. Right now, he says, you may feel tossed around by forces which are, which are beyond your control. Um, but you will find power to resist them when you realise you are set apart by God, for God and he is never going to reverse that decision. Perhaps one of the greatest statements of what it means to be sanctified in Christ Jesus is what Paul says at the end of Romans chapter 8. He says, I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation is going to be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We are kept safe. If God has begun a work in our hearts as believers, we are safe we are secure, we belong to him, we are sanctified. Actually, when he says called to be holy there, it doesn't mean um, called in the sense of um, um, calling us to a good life that we, um, with, with um, uh, a threat of punishment or, a, or, a, um, or an appeal particularly. Everywhere, when the Apostle Paul describes God's call, he's describing an unstoppable force. When God speaks into our hearts, it is not possible to resist him. Those he predestined, says the Apostle, he also called to be conformed to the likeness of his son, Jesus Christ. So when he says to these Corinthians that they are called to be holy, he's not calling, God's not calling in the way that any of us call, in the vague hope that person will respond. He's calling as the sovereign Lord of our hearts, 
who has spoken to us and he will not let us resist. Oh yes, there there may be lots of struggling. There may be lots of byways that we wander down. Lots of moments when we feel we can no longer uh, hear the word of God. But if he has called you, he will also glorify you. He will also transform you. And he will begin that now. From the beginning to end, then, of 1 Corinthians, Paul is going to be telling these wobbly believers who are tempted to believe all sorts of the false things, he is going to be saying one thing to them again and again and again. He's going to say, if you want to grow as believers, simply discover who you are. Simply find out what Christ has done for you. Simply plumb the depths of the character of God, the God who has sanctified you and the God who has called you to be holy. Up to Christmas, again and again, we are going to be focusing on one particular aspect of that. Simply understand the cross of Jesus. Simply understand what that means about God. Simply let those truths actually shine before you so that your heart discovers, that it, it, it quickened, it's brought to life. It's drawn inexorably to God. Because as we discover what God has done for us in Christ, So he changes us. And no technique and no guru is going to change us in the way that God himself changes us. So that we find in our hearts love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control welling up because we have met with the living God and we have seen what he has done for us and our hearts have been entranced by that. We have set um, uh, 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 in our vision statement that uh, we have said that we believe God has called us together to delight in him. Because we believe that that, in brief, summarises everything that a Christian is called to. And we have said that in delighting in him we will display the glory of Jesus. We will be transformed and start to take on the characteristics of Jesus. There is no guru that can do that. There is no magical teacher who can do that. There is no unique spiritual experience that can do that. 
No. Anyone can help you with that who can show you what's in the Bible. Who can show you what Jesus has done. And let your heart be changed because you know Christ.